the fundamental structure of a broken system nobody really wants to touch. And that system is how our, our litigation process works, how lawyers deliver business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall. I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today we're calling this episode just a conservative Alberta lawyer, which is, <laughs> I think, a really great title, especially when you get to know Rob Harvey, who is the uh, subject, I guess, of our conversation today. That's right. Our guest this week is Rob Harvey, who's a veteran family lawyer in Alberta. He's a former bencher of the Alberta Law Society and chair of the Access to Justice Committee. And Rob's been in the vanguard of pretty much every family law innovation in Alberta for the last 20 years. I first met Rob a long time ago when he was working to promote collaborative family law in Alberta, and then we got reacquainted in May 2013 when he came to the dialogue event organized at Windsor Law to discuss the results and the outcomes of the national SRL study. And Rob was at pains then, as he was when we first met, to emphasize his conservative credentials. <laughs> and despite the fact that he was wearing a pink shirt, which <laughs> I thought was a very good sign, he insisted that he was just a conservative Alberta guy, hence the title of this <laughs> podcast. But that statement disguises so many layers of complexity, as I have come to discover as I got to know Rob better and better over the next few years. Today, he's the chair of the NSRLP board and someone I know I can depend on for great strategic advice, no backing down in the face of what he sees as an issue of principle, and an absolute aversion to BS. <laughs> so... For this conversation, I reached Rob at his law offices in Lethbridge in July, and I wanted to ask him to track with me the evolution of his views to where he is now, a forthright critic of the legal establishment. Hello, office. Hello. Could I speak to Rob Harvey, please? It's Julia yes. McFarlane. Thank you. Just a moment, please. Hello, Julie. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. I'm okay. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. No problem. So, we've known each other a long time, Rob. I think maybe 15 years or maybe even a few more years than that. And so I know you have spent a lot of time doing a lot of work trying to figure out how to make family legal services more accessible to more people. So... Let's begin with the positive, because I fear that some of this conversation may not be as positive. Is there anything that you think we're doing better in terms of offering more accessible legal services to more people? And, and what do you think have been the most important and successful innovations over uh, this last 15 years? Well, uh, trying to take my cynics hat off for the moment uh, and, and trying not to be... Uh, too prejudicial. Um, I think the NSRLP that obviously we're both involved with has done some good things, both 
in identifying an issue that seems to now be grasping, uh, gathering the attention of the people that need to pay attention to the, the emerging reality of self-represented litigants. So I think uh, your organization or our organization has done a good job of helping to illustrate the issues in any event and make it clear that this is a reality that has to be dealt with. Uh, and I think beyond that, um, now the NSRLP has been doing some good work in helping to uh, engage self-represented litigants to be somewhat more effective in the system. And I think that's been very helpful. I've noticed, and I've talked to other lawyers, and I don't know whether this, how much of this is directly related to, to the national program, but self-represented litigants tend to be uh, a little more effective, I think, now than perhaps hmm. I noticed a decade ago. And, and why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, I think judges are becoming a little more capable, or maybe it's just they're more used to the reality of self-represented litigants. You know, it's kind of exploded in the last decade where it was very infrequent. I just uh, read an analysis of divorce. Defendants in divorce, I think it's 55% now, are self-represented. Yes. So now it's become common. So I think the judges get more experience in what works and what doesn't work. Um, I think uh, litigants, uh, there's more available information now on the Internet than ever before. It's not simply, you know, some angry blogger uh, giving his take, but it's people like the NSRLP and others, uh, government websites, all over Canada and the United States that, that are giving more information that's more effective. And more reliable, yes. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's more resources, so I think that's been somewhat helpful. I, I think it's unfortunate, but the reality of self-represented litigants, I think, is, is a symptom of a larger problem. And so helping And say, say some more about that, then. Say, say a little bit more about the larger problem as you see it. You know, I spoke to a judge who had been former president of the Law Society of Alberta that I respect a lot, and I was talking to him about limited scope retainers in particular, and, and he raised the concern, and his description was of helping people perform self-surgery. Mm. And it's not exactly that analogy, but it's not dissimilar. We have a very serious issue, custody of your children or your financial welfare in a family matter, Telling people, uh, yeah, just do this on your own, it has its, its issues, I think. It, it, so the fact that we make it easier for people possibly to, to deal with their own legal issues ignores the larger question of, is that the best service that can be provided for people that have very serious problems? Well, I think you and I, Rob, although, you know, we don't agree on everything, um, you know, we do certainly share some common ground on a few things, and I think one of those areas of common ground is that for people who cannot afford what is presently available to them in terms of expert help via lawyers, um, they don't have an awful lot of other options other than looking online and doing this themselves. So 
if these are all symptoms of a larger problem, what is the more durable and lasting solution of matching? Because you and I know that many, many, many of the people that we talk to all the time who are representing themselves would love not to be representing themselves. They're not doing this to have a good time. My take is that the the justice sort of constellation, to use the current buzzword, which means everyone, has to do a much better job at finding solutions to people that have differences in an efficient way that's effective. And, and that includes lawyers and judges and government and law societies and litigants themselves. And my experience over the last decade has unfortunately been more attuned to how we like to point fingers at the other players and avoid pointing fingers at ourselves. So the bottom line is, I think you're right. I don't think self-representatives are there because they think they're going to do a better job than they would if they had a lawyer. It's because they don't feel they have a choice more often than not. And then the question is, well, why? Well, because it's so expensive. You know, and I'm a family lawyer. And I've been doing this 31 years. Uh, the amount of money it costs for my clients to get from A to B now compared to 20 years ago is significant, far beyond, in my opinion, the sort of cost of living. And why is that? Well, I think I think because the cost to operate a law office has become more substantial. I think the effort on the part of lawyers to cover their own asses has become more significant. I think the court process has become less uh, efficient to get from A to B. There, there are so many more, in my opinion, than there used to be. I think judges, to be honest, in their effort to fashion perfect justice, uh, are afraid to make the wrong decisions. And so the time it takes to conduct a trial and to listen to argument takes immeasurably longer. And, and it's easy for me as a lawyer to say, well, the judges and, and the rules of court and the uh, government, but I also have to say the lawyers. We spend, there's an incentive in your typical lawyer retainer to waste time. The more stuff we do, the more we get paid. Um, and we get paid typically in family law in particular by the hour. And so why well, get done in three hours what can take me 20? And the only thing that motivates us, and I think there is a high motivation, is we want to help our clients. Yeah. We want, by and large, family lawyers, I think, are more in tune, I think, than most other lawyers with an empathy for their clients. But even though, that being said, the, the way we do business, is still largely uh, antithetical to the idea of things getting quicker and cheaper. So this sounds, Rob, like for you, the work that you've done over the last 15, 20 years has in some ways been frustrating as well as rewarding. Can you point to a couple of things that you think your thinking has changed on, has evolved on? Um, you know, things that you think differently about now than you did when you first, for example, introduced yourself to me, I think back in 2013, or reintroduced yourself to me as a conservative Alberta lawyer. Now, I knew you weren't really because you were wearing a pink shirt. <laughs> However, that was how you described yourself. And I think that there are ways in which you think about the issue of access to justice now that would not be described as conservative. So what's changed for you? Um, I would think, I've always been a bit of a contrarian, I think. 
someone who didn't feel comfortable in accepting conventional wisdom since I was a young, young person. And I don't think that's really changed, but I think what has taken me to a somewhat, I don't know, more enlightened point of view on things is I've always, I've always hated people that were ignorant. And I don't want to be one of those people. So if I take a, a perspective on a social issue, you know, I hate to say this, there was a time I didn't think gay marriage was maybe a great thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? But then you stop and you think about that and you open your mind to why you feel that way and what goes into that mindset. You know, and you know, it's been a long time since I had that point of view um, because it just doesn't make sense. And so, uh, in, specifically in the area that we're talking about, you know, I think I've, I've always had that sense of trying to become more enlightened about whatever the issue is. I try not to have a closed mind. I try to be open to what seems to be a reasonable proposal for making things better. And I still think I'm a little bit conservative, but I'm conservative, I hope, in, a, in, a, in an intelligent way, in the sense of I think we need to do our best to make things better, but it should be based on evidence, not based on assumption, based on political pressure, based on conjecture. I think um, people, including myself, need to be open to change how they do what they do when the evidence shows them that there is a better way to do it. I mean, one of the things that I think is a key issue here for for lawyers, especially lawyers who've been in practice for a while like yourself, whatever, as you say, their political stripes, is that there is in many ways a challenge, it's not just in law, it's in all professions, to the power of lawyers that's coming from the many, many people who are appearing in court now without lawyers. They aren't necessarily intent or, you know, sort of in, deliberately challenging power, but there's a way in which they are seen as, as threatening because this is this is not the normal. This has not been the normal, and it doesn't feel very safe, and it doesn't feel very familiar. People make decisions based on their sort of anecdotal experience, and they make assumptions as to why those things are the way they are. And so lawyers, by and large, when you talk to them about self reps, there is... Uh, They're talking about the exceptional, yeah. They're crazy people, right? Oh, I've got another self rep. They're all crazy people. You know, it's just another form of stereotype that I think we need to challenge ourselves with. But, you know, we all get kind of, I think we all get prejudiced if we're not careful in many different ways, you know. Um, and, and, and the justice system is no different. So I know just to make this a little bit more systemic, that you and I also share some common frustrations about the slow pace of change in response to access to justice issues. Um, and what seem to be sometimes, you know, endless debates that go around in the same circles but relatively little action. Um, would you be willing to say a bit about what frustrates you the most about how we're responding? across Canada to the access to justice crisis. And my biggest frustration is, I think, what you say. You know, the Cromwell report came out not long, so long ago, but now long enough that said, we're not doing what we need to do, everyone. And everyone jumped on that uh, politically, I think, and said, yes, 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 we need to make things better. 
and then we didn't. Mm. When I went to different things, I started seeing the same things over and over again. Um, well, let's talk about triage. That's a big buzzword these days, which means helping people find their best place to go in the system. Um, you know, breaking down silos, that's another good buzzword. So people logged <laughs> on to these buzzwords, but the fundamental structure of a broken system, nobody really wants to touch. And that system is how our, our litigation process works, how lawyers deliver business, how to some degree our law societies regulate and direct our lawyers. My experience has been the universities uh, are actually evolving, I think, quicker than everyone else. So I'm less critical. I've seen some interesting things happen, obviously, with University of Windsor. I spoke a couple of weeks ago to Ian Holloway at University of Calgary. They're doing some really interesting stuff with a family uh, law incubator. I think the universities yeah. are, are adjusting and seeing that things are changing, but the primary players, pretty much being everyone else, they just want to keep doing everything the way they've done it. So, Rob, let's let's try and end on a more optimistic note because I know that uh, you and I could be crying into our beer for some time here, but yeah. but there are innovations. I mean, you talked about the, um, the University of Calgary's family law incubator and some of the work that's being done in the law schools, and there are other initiatives, some of which I know you're involved with in the in the family bar. So, you know, what do you get the most excited about? What makes you feel the most hopeful? Can you point to a couple of things? We're now starting to see evidence-based analysis in law uh, where, in my experience anyway, it's been largely based on anecdotal or hunch-based processes that, by and large, in my mind, have been ineffective. So I've, we're seeing more science-based uh, approaches I'm involved in Alberta right now with a limited scope retainer project where we're trying to encourage lawyers to offer limited scope. We've created a website that makes lawyers available for clients and the judiciary and the court administration, and we're gathering data from the lawyers and the clients so we can hopefully create, again, more science-based review of, does this really work or doesn't it? So there's more of that going on. Unfortunately, so much of it is poorly funded and not fully supported by the people who should, namely, in my opinion, the government, but it's out there. And not in Canada, but I, I, I link into, a, what's it called, HIAJ, the Hague International Justice Group. Yes. And they're fascinating things, particularly in, in developing countries. And I think that's really interesting when you go into a place like Uganda or somewhere or in the Ukraine where they have had to some degree dysfunctional legal systems and they've got innovation that's that's trying to make things better and I look at those and I read them and I think these have to be by definition lower cost but more effective avenues to justice resolution. I think some of those things can be imported into Canada. I think there are things we can take from developing uh, nations uh, in, in infant sort of judicial processes that would lend themselves potentially to what we do. But I think we're a little spoiled because we've got this nice big behemoth of a system that we go, well, it's just fine. Why worry about changing it? Well, it's certainly fascinating to wonder whether or not innovations in countries that maybe have not had a functional legal system could, in fact, be innovations that if we were more courageous here 
as you were saying earlier on in this conversation about really taking a hard look at what we needed to change mightn't be something that we could learn from very directly in Canada. Thank you, Rob, so much. Great to talk to you. It's always wonderful to talk to you. You take care. You too. Take care. Bye for now. Okay. Bye, Joy. So I'm just going to say quickly off the bat, there are a lot of things that struck me about that conversation with Rob, but the thing that I kind of wrote in my notes at the very end and that is my overwhelming feeling is that Rob is just a good guy. He's a great guy and we're lucky to have him on our board. We're very lucky to have him on our board. Yeah. Now, that being said, um, I think one of the things that makes him a great guy is what he was talking about when you asked him about his the evolution of his change mm. over the last number of years from a, I guess, more conservative <laughs> Alberta lawyer into... Just um, a slightly conservative Alberta yeah. lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and I really liked what he said about... Um, you asked him, you know, why he thought what had precipitated that change and he talked about always kind of wanting to be more enlightened so and and using the phrase he you know conservative in an intelligent way and Mm. he talked about um his thoughts about gay marriage and how that has changed and Mm. i really like that he is a person who um is willing to open up his mind yeah and and you know i think one of the things that that we value about Rob and, and others like him are those who are willing to think about things differently as the circumstances and the conditions change. And although that sounds kind of overwhelmingly duh, obvious, it's really difficult for people in systems that are as, uh, you know, sort of historically and traditionally entrenched as the legal system and the legal profession to really accept changes. And what we've done historically in the legal system, and Rob talks about this, is we rely on anecdote. Mm -hmm. And that's not a really good way of figuring out our way through change. And I think his points about the need for evidence-based change is certainly something that here at the NSRLP we're pushing for all the time. And I think increasingly people who are enlightened realize that that's what's going to be really important if we're going to have a 21st century justice system that we can feel proud of. What also struck me is Rob's frustration Mm. with the slow pace of change. Um, And he, you know, it's been a number of years now since he has been aware of the SRL issue and has been working with and communicating with you and has been on our board of advisors and in lots of other initiatives and too. in lots of yeah. other, exactly yeah and he's frustrated and I liked what he said about <laughs> and I think this is just often the case in situations like this where you're trying to make change in a huge behemoth of a system there's a lot of buzzwords and there's a lot mm. of talking about it but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of or enough systemic change yeah and and I know that Rob has a lot of frustrations about this and this is something that I have frustrations about also Uh, and I think that's very true that when you're trying to do something as huge as change the culture of the justice system and who participates and who those participants are and how that system works I mean it's enormous Mm -hmm. and that means that it's relatively easy to kind of take cover 
under buzzwords or well we had another really interesting meeting and we came up with all these things that we think are wrong with the justice system which of course we often hear over and over again and I think that that one of the things that that Rob represents is that spirit of really wanting to try something different uh, mm -hmm. even in a small or an experimental way for example with the limited scope retainer project but others that he's involved in as well and I loved that he talked about how developing countries in some ways which have to start almost at the ground up in developing a legal system might have a lot to teach us because we're so entrenched in a particular model that maybe going right back to basics and asking what it is that we can do to serve people and meet their needs at a very fundamental level might be a good way ahead for the justice system in a more developed country like Canada as well. In other news, we love public library initiatives for SRLs, and a library branch in Bend, Oregon has introduced a great idea. Their Lawyer in the Library program provides free 30-minute consultations with a local attorney on Wednesday evenings. The volunteer attorney is able to answer questions and assist people on civil matters such as small claims, contracts, landlord-tenant issues, and wills. Jeff Hall, Deschutes County Circuit Court Trial Administrator and Access to Justice Committee member, said five lawyers have already signed up for the program, and they could help expand it to more times in library locations. The program is designed specifically to help litigants who do not qualify for legal aid but cannot afford full representation. Besides providing legal information, the consulting lawyer may be able to connect these litigants to attorneys who offer services at lower costs. We think this program is a wonderful idea, and we'll be watching with interest to see if it expands in Oregon and at other public library systems around North America. In a somewhat similar vein, we are very happy to announce that our own Paul Martin Law Library at Windsor Law has recently decided to allow self-represented litigants to get an external borrower's card for free, waiving the regular fee applied to members of the public not affiliated with the University of Windsor. The external borrower's card allows a user to sign out physical materials and access a large number of legal databases. SRLs have always been welcome to visit the Windsor Law Library, but this policy change is a step further on the road to access to justice. We want to sincerely thank law librarian Annette Deemers and the entire Windsor Law Library staff for their welcoming attitude to SRLs. We hope that more law school libraries follow their wonderful example. Finally, we were excited to see the recent Globe and Mail story on lawyer Vince Calderhead, who has just been hired by Halifax law firm Pink Larkin to launch a unique private practice thought to be the first of its kind in Canada. The firm will pay Mr. Calderhead a full salary to work exclusively on behalf of disadvantaged and marginalized people, offering his legal services to them free of charge. Mr. Calderhead has spent more than 30 years as a legal aid lawyer serving the poor and is nationally renowned for his unique approach to poverty law, which centers on pressing courts to strike down legislation that violates the protections he sees impoverished people as entitled to under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Recently retired Supreme Court Justice Thomas Cromwell has called Mr. Calderhead's appointment at Pink Larkin bold, enlightened, and very creative. Mr. Cromwell goes on to say, I'm not aware of any firm that has hired a lawyer exclusively for that purpose or hired a person to tackle the more systemic side of social and economic rights. 
We wish Mr. Calderhead and Pink Larkin every success with this endeavor and hope to see many more law firms taking similar steps. As always, the links for these news stories can be found on the webpage for this podcast episode at representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. Next week's podcast is a conversation over the implications of the Harvey Weinstein saga in the United States and what that means here as we look back at events like the Young Gameshi scandal a number of years ago. Who knew and how long did they know for? 